Are we calling you Dan or Daniel on this? Oh, it doesn't matter. You call me what you like. I'll be whoever you want me to be. Yeah, I, I, I can't decide half the time myself. User Error 48. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Daniel. All right, so the reboot starts here. And let's start with a hashtag ask error. And remember, if you want to ask us stupid questions, we might well answer them. Use the hashtag ask error on social media, uh, Twitter and uh, Telegram, that sort of thing. So the first one is, what is the best bit and what is the worst bit about living the dream? Because now I am living the dream. Dan, you're running your own distro. That's pretty much living the dream. And Popey, you're working for a free and up source distro company. So we're all living the dream. So what's the best part of that? Poverty. <laughs> no, that's the worst part, Oh, right? sorry. <laughs> Got those mixed up. That's all I could think about. Okay, well, for me, the best part is I never have to get up early. For the last few weeks that I've been doing this, only once did I have to set my alarm, and that was to go to Og Camp. And then I fucked that up well and truly when I got there and slept till lunchtime and didn't turn up till ridiculously late. I do notice that when I message you on telegram the little tick doesn't light up so i know you haven't seen it you're almost certainly in bed and i i can anticipate that you're not going to read my messages until late in the afternoon so thanks well yeah i kind of wake up around lunchtime and read my messages if you're going to live the dream the thing is if you're working with primarily american people and english people who have jobs like you or europeans who have jobs then everything has to be done in the evening and so I'm fucked if I'm going to get up early and then work late. So why not just stay up and be on American time? Fair point. Living the dream. Well done. So is there nothing good about it, Dan, like living the dream of running your own distro? No, sorry. I just, I got mixed up there. <laughs> no, scheduling, like you said, is definitely really good um, as far as the flexibility. Uh, I've definitely got to spend a lot more time with my family and things like that than, um you know, I, I don't really have to put in for vacation and things like that. I could just say, hey, you know, I'm going to be absent for this time. And so getting to have a better work-life balance, I think, is probably the biggest pro. Yeah, I think for me, working from home is certainly uh, beneficial and not having to commute. I've done plenty of years of driving around the M25 and even further afield and not having to do that and my commute being walking into the kitchen, getting a cup of coffee and walking up the stairs and sitting down is most welcome. Um, I think the other cool thing is working with cool people. Um, everywhere I've ever worked before, I've worked as a tiny, tiny cog in a giant corporation and it's felt like nothing I did actually affected anything. Whereas working in a relatively small open source company, I work with a whole load of cool people and that's very enjoyable. That's a satisfying part of the day. And so Dan has already told us that the worst part is the poverty. And uh, I think we might get back to that later on. But um, what about you, Popey? What's the worst part about it? Uh, worst part actually is is partly a good thing. Is The good thing is so much of it is done in the open, but the bad thing is so much of it is done in the open that everyone is a critic. Oh, yeah. And everyone has reason to um, tell you you're doing it wrong. Whereas when I'm, when I'm sat in my office, you know, in previous jobs – I had a manager and the only person who told me I did something wrong was him. And he was the person responsible to make sure that I was kept in line and I did the right thing. Whereas when you're part of an open source project and there are people who believe they are stakeholders in your project from all far flung corners of the world who have an opinion and a fully formed record on what you should be doing on a daily basis, um, that can be quite frustrating. 
Well, especially when uh, the things that they suggest are things that all of these failed projects do. They're like, why don't you do the same thing like all these projects that are completely unsuccessful? <laughs> You're like, well, that's why I don't do that, you know? We, we've we've done things differently because that doesn't work, you know, when you do stuff like that. And and people, like, they don't want to reason through it. They don't want to follow the why you've done things. They're just upset of, like, why don't you listen to me? Yeah. There's a, a lot of, um, without we should get too negative, <laughs> uh, but you did ask. So um, there's a lot of people who feel like the decisions you make in an open source project just come out of your butt. <laughs> on a on a Monday morning, that there aren't well thought out plans and well thought out rationales for why you're doing things, but because they can't necessarily see those conversations that you happen to have, you know, with other people on a Slack or an IRC channel, they're not in. They think you're just making this stuff up as you go along, and that's often not the case. Um, and that can be quite frustrating because you have to re-explain everything over and over again. Well, I'm afraid I don't have anything bad about my dream so far, except for not being able to tell anyone about it. It's been so frustrating for the past <laughs> few weeks. Like I've only been able to tell a couple of people and I just, I've got so many people asking me what's going on. Cause I let a little bit of it out that I was doing full-time podcasting and then just not being able to tell people has been such a nightmare. But now due to the magic of time travel, you will know about this by the time you listen to it but you're not when we're recording it so it's still frustrating <laughs> so that's the only bad thing dockless bike sharing this is a phenomenon that has been growing massively at least in london over the last few years there are at least two different companies operating these it started with the docked bikes which were uh, dubbed the boris bikes uh, originally i think um, which you have to take back to a certain place. Um, but now you've got these ones that you just leave it wherever and use the app on your phone and uh, it's like a pound for an hour or whatever. Uh, presumably you do have these, um, is it Sacramento where you live? Yeah, so we're actually one of the cities um, who have the jump bikes and it's like a Uber company, I suppose. And they're wildly popular here. I think they said they were going to um, bump up from their current supply to like 10,000 bikes or something. What, are they motorized then? They're like a hybrid, so they're part electric, right? They're like a moped, I guess. All right. And Poppy, living out on the sticks where you are, you've probably never seen these uh, except when you go into the office. It's funny you should say that. I was in London on the weekend just gone, and uh, I was walking along the... Uh, north bank of the Thames and I saw a bunch of homeless people hanging around and then just after that I saw one of these bikes and I thought this bike might belong to one of them because it looked really dilapidated but also on second glance it looked relatively modern I don't know which one it was it had orange wheels so I assume that's like the brand identity for one of them yeah um, but it, it it struck me that like this was near those Boris bikes the or Santander bikes as they are now I guess uh, it was near them, but not in a dock. And I thought, that's weird. I'd never heard of dockless bikes. Um, and I just thought it was a crap bike that someone had just dumped there. I didn't realize this was something I could, you know, pick up and use and cycle off on. It just looked like a mess. It just been dumped there. Yeah, well, at first I saw them while driving around and I just kept seeing these orange bikes. I thought, who's dumping them there? And then I looked into it and realized, ah, okay, this is dockless bike sharing. And then... While drunk one night, I thought, right, I'm going to ride it for a bit. Got on, took about half a pedal, and then nearly went over the handlebars because obviously it's like designed to lock unless you unlock it with your phone or whatever. So don't do that, listeners. So are they are they powered? They have some. I, I've I've 
I mean, all I know is I walk past one of the weekend, and that's as much as I know. Are they? Do they have uh, some intelligence in them? Because they just look like a really basic bike. Well, they must do because you scan the QR code, I think, off them, and then it kind of pops open the lock that makes it actually be able to wheel. So they must have some sort of battery. I'm presuming that it charges while you ride. You wouldn't need that much of a battery to run basic stuff like that, I wouldn't have thought. I don't know how it communicates back to the servers and stuff. Well, I, I would imagine the bike doesn't really need to to communicate back. It does because it needs to do stuff regarding your fare, like if you want to um, hold it and stuff like that. Actually, the, the jump ones have a, a solar panel and uh, a keypad and everything. I think you can chart, do a card directly off of it or use a lock or I, I don't know. I haven't actually used one, but yeah, but they have to communicate if they're in the service area and stuff like that though too. Well, solar panels wouldn't work in this country because it, it's never sunny, but in California, it's kind of a different story. So you've mentioned that they're just dumped. Are they? I mean, the one I saw was up on a kickstand, but uh, do people like line them up like they would be in Boris bike stands or do people just literally just dump them in a pile? They just literally leave them wherever. You're supposed to leave it on the stand, I think. Um, but yeah, you just ride it to wherever you want, stick it back on the stand and that's it. Yeah, just get on with your day. There are places where you can line them up, but they're, I see them all over the place. People just kind of lock them up in random places everywhere. The problem in London, though, as I understand it, is that they don't have permission to you to to go everywhere. So not every because London is divided into a set of boroughs, and they have different permissions in different boroughs. So actually, the phone, the bike will lock if you cross the boundary from one borough to another or it will alert you and then start taking away credit if you take the bike outside of the boroughs that you're allowed to be in i know that was the case i don't know if it still is these ones actually they'll charge you an extra fee if you take it outside the service area so the big question is are these actually good for society good for the environment good for people's health or what what do we think i mean my kind of take on it is especially these ones um that are an Uber company, you know, they're they're kind of taking the stance of if we don't cannibalize ourselves, someone else will, right? And I think that um, as far as taking the market away from other ride sharing services in the city, that it seems to be really effective. And uh, I don't know, I, I think it's good for the city if the alternative is people doing ride sharing, it takes more cars off the street. I think if there was dumping grounds, like not necessarily like as organized as the Boris bikes, but somewhere like an orange square painted on the pavement that they could be kind of haphazardly arranged in, then I would feel more comfortable if there were lots of those all over the place. But then that steals away public space from people just walking down the street, just as the Boris bikes have. Like they make the pavement narrower by having the bikes there. So while it's it's useful and I can see how the flexibility of being able to just grab one is very attractive – I'm less interested in them if they if they cause a mess and make the city just you know look like a bike dumping ground. So in Sacramento, the city's actually gone the other direction, and instead of taking space away from the sidewalk, they're actually removing vehicle lanes. Huh. The city's been going really hard here on um, adding in protected bike like bike lanes and things like that. So they're really working, I think, with these kinds of concepts and pushing the idea of Sacramento being more of a bike city. But for me. The maths of this just doesn't add up, right? A bike like that has got to cost a hundred whatever dollars, pounds at least. You would have thought, even at scale, because it's got some smart technology in it, and 
you know, just to not completely fall apart on the first time. So let, let's just use 100 as the kind of benchmark here. And if it's roughly a pound a go, then you have to have 100 goes on it uh, to break even, but not really because you've got to pay for servers and staff and um, taxes and all the rest of it. So you're looking at 200 goes probably to even break even and like three or 400 goes to make a profit, which you'd think, well, okay, it's, it only takes an hour. That's You can do the maths of that. If, it, if it's used four or five times a day, then it's not going to take long at all. But Oh, I think they're used way more than that. Okay, well, even if they are, right, it doesn't really matter how long it is. It's how many goes they get. There's going to be wear and tear on them, and people are going to leave them places. They're going to get thrown around and damaged, um, and they're going to be in need of repair, right? And not to mention the fact that they are a lawsuit waiting to happen. I mean, presumably there must be something in the terms of service when you first sign up saying that you won't sue them, but... um, People are riding around on these bikes on the the roads, well, either on the pavements and running into pedestrians or on the roads and running into cars and getting into potentially serious accidents because they've got no uh, what we call PPE in this country, personal protective equipment. So, you know, your um, high-vis jacket and helmets and pads and all that kind of stuff. You don't have bike lanes. We do. But in some places, they're not they're not ubiquitous. But... but that's not unique to these rental bikes. Like I could go and buy a bike from Halfords, ride it into central London the wrong way down the road and not have any personal protection equipment. It's not unique to that bike. No, but that's going to cost you one or 200 quid to buy the bike. It's not going to cost you a quid with your phone right then and there when you're pissed. Right. But the company that has my pound also has my credit card details or my PayPal account and probably lots of other details about me that they could use in order to recoup the cost of the busted bike or the insurance claim for whatever it is I damaged along the way. Um, they can recoup that from me. Why, why do they need to pay? So do you think that there's any money? Is it a decent business model then? Well, the ones here are a dollar for 15 minutes and they're in incredible demand. So I think they probably make a decent amount of money. If they've got 10,000 bikes going, you know, even if they only had one ride a day. Yeah, that's a lot of revenue coming in, but there are a lot of expenses, um, as I said, with the, the startup money to buying them in the first place. and Yeah, start, startup costs, sure. But I think that, I don't think they would be doing it if it wasn't, if they weren't worried about um, the revenue from their other businesses. They just do the usual you know, start off a, a pound an hour, and once everyone becomes dependent upon them, you start ramping the price up a little bit or reducing the duration that you get the bike for. Well, I have heard, uh, well, accusations that, that it's essentially a license to steal money from venture capital companies because you have this great idea, this startup, and you get a lot of money from them, and then you don't really care about actually making any money i mean that's startup culture 101 isn't it you don't necessarily yeah, right. make money you just have growth um right but then then uh, i mean also the model is based on is it's a round pound you pay for an hour up to an hour right and if you go into the next hour it's another pound so surely like i can't imagine many journeys that i would take through london that would take me an hour i would probably uh take the bike for a 15 minute ride 
pay a pound and then someone else could pick it up and they get two bites of the cherry. So you, you might want to readjust your, your estimated calculation based on the fact that a bike actually gets paid for twice within one hour. Yeah. Ours are for 15 minutes, not an hour. And even then, presumably sometimes people don't have it the whole 15 minutes. Right. Right. So it could be quite lucrative. Um, I don't have the numbers to hand, but it, it sounds like a, a reasonable venture to, to have a go at. And it seems popular around the world. So it's not like a unique thing to London or a unique thing to Sacramento. It's happening in multiple places. Yeah, especially in China, where there's mass graveyards of these bikes, because there was just too many people trying to do it at once. Right. And, and we have some regulation that's the other end of the scale in London, where it's difficult for one or two companies to do this. So we don't have that problem. We may have other problems, but that's not one of them. Travel is good for the soul. Who could argue with that? Right. If you travel around the world and meet loads of cool, interesting people, go to cool, interesting places, you grow as a person, and it's just generally good for everyone. Hmm. Popey, you travel around all the time. Uh, how many times, how many flights have you been on this year so far? Um, a few. Um, I actually couldn't tell you off the top of my head how many countries I've been to this year. Um, it's probably three or four, not that many. Yeah. But I'm doing it because I'm being paid to do it because my job requires me to go to these different places. Um, it, it feels like your travel is good for the soul is more someone who's doing it because they want to see the world. They want to become a better person. They want to experience all the, the things that life has to offer. And I find those people utterly objectionable. I hate it when I stumble across one of these people who's see, been all around the world and all they want to want to do is just show you all their photos and will not shut up about this time when they were in Thailand or this lovely little place they found in uh, Koh Samui or wherever. It's, I, I hate it. I, I really do. They, I mean, I don't mind that people do that, and I think it's great that some people want to travel the world, but you don't need to tell me about it all the time. Yeah, I think I have kind of the opposite problem where, you know, I'm like you said, we're traveling for work, and, and then people are asking me, oh, how was this country? What was that country like? And did you see this? Did you see that? And it's like, well, I, I spend most of the time, you know, in a hotel or in a conference room or, you know, what and when I'm off of work, now I'm tired and it's like, well, I need to find a place to eat. And and by the time that, you know, you've gone through all your must do's that day, you have, you know, like an hour of downtime before you have to wake up and do it again. I agree with you, but I feel like an awful person for saying that. I, I for many years, I've got taxis to the airport and the taxi driver will say something like, oh, where are you off to? And I'll tell them, and they'll say, oh, it must be lovely to go traveling around the world. And, and I spin them exactly the same story that you have. And they look at me like I'm some kind of ungrateful bastard because yeah. I'm being paid to go to like Copenhagen or New York or wherever right. it might be. And I'm so ungrateful that I'm not absorbing all of the culture in that location when in actual fact what I'm doing is getting another taxi from the airport to the venue, sitting in the venue for eight hours, then going and finding a bar somewhere and drinking with my friends yep. and then going to sleep. Like that's basically what happens when I travel. I don't go and find some little off the beaten track hut where I can get some, you know, cold pressed uh, drinks and, you know, sit watching the sun go down. Maybe I should, I don't know. But um, yeah, you don't tend to get that in Vienna and New York where I go. No. And I, and I get that same thing from family too, where it's, they, they kind of, you know, they've never had the opportunity to travel outside of the U S and so for them, 
you know, seeing me go to these places and then come back and saying, well, you know, I didn't really get to like just travel, you know, I'm, I'm here for work, you know, that that's, uh, it's tough to kind of relay that to other people. Okay. So you guys have traveled quite a lot for work, but you have presumably traveled for pleasure as well and take every possible opportunity to do so. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'll take a holiday and take the kids on holiday. Um, but I'm not one of these hippie types who's converted a transit van into like uh, somewhere where I can go traveling across Europe with the kids and, you know, live off of beans for, for a month so that I can travel through France and Spain and go down to Morocco or whatever. I, I go to a holiday destination like 90% of Brits and I spend my time relaxing, um, away from work, not thinking about work and, um, sitting on the beach and chatting to friends and having pizza and, you know, the, the kind of things normal people do. Um, yeah. I think it's more common um, and probably boring and probably tedious to some people who, you know, would much rather see the world and go somewhere completely different. I've, I've gone to the same city multiple times in successive years on holiday because I like it there. I don't go to the same place every year, but I have been to the same place a couple of times with the family because they like it. We know where all the facilities are. Um, maybe I'm not adventurous enough. I don't care. I enjoy it. So screw you. Yeah, I feel I feel like we have a similar story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there is this axiom that traveling is good and you should go to as many places as possible. And there are a lot more, I think, of those people, those hippie people that you've described, Popey, that like you know, want to tell you about going to Thailand and everything, right? But why is it that the kind of people who love to travel around whether it is for work or, you know, you could argue have to travel around for work or love to travel for pleasure to see cool places. Why is it that those are the very same people who claim to care about climate change the most? <laughs> well, <laughs> there's the twist. Mm. <laughs> well, they might be. I mean, I, I have a, a friend who uh, I worked with and he would always take the method of transport that made the least impact whenever he came to a canonical event. I think on one occasion we had an event in the States and he caught a, a ship across. He just like, you know, paid the minimal amount to sit on board a, a container ship across the Atlantic. Didn't that take weeks? It took a while, yeah. Um, <laughs> he got a talk out of it as well with photos of him laying on a sun lounger on the, on the, um, on the deck. Um, and when traveling in Europe, he would use the train rather than fly wherever possible. So it is possible. And yeah, there are some people who take their environmental, f um, impact into account when they, when they travel. But they are few and far between. Yeah. 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 I agree. And I mean, do you ever think about that when you're sitting on yet another plane? No, never. <laughs> Will you in future? <laughs> no, because that's only one part of my life. It's like, you know, I do my recycling and sometimes I put glass in the wrong bin, you know, whoops. Um, it's, I also sometimes drive a little bit fast, which consumes more fossil fuels than I really should. And, you know, sometimes I let the hot tap run a little bit too long in the sink and I leave the cold tap running when I'm brushing my teeth and I overfill the kettle. Like, yes, flying is a bad thing and I probably should do less of it. But there's a whole shitload of other things I should probably do less of as well. And I haven't fixed all of those yet. So, you know, stop beating me up about that one thing, right? <laughs> Did the CO2 emissions from flying outweigh like 
eating meat. I think having children is probably a bigger impact. And I've got two of those. So, you know, I, I, it doesn't matter what I do. Like I, I could be the best hippie who unwraps everything at the supermarket and, you know, doesn't take any plastic home and has the minimal impact. But the fact that I've punched out two kids like negates half of that. So what can I do? Yeah, I mean, there were there was a whole bunch of stuff, you know, not too long ago about the drought in California and people saying, oh, you know, conserve water, like don't water your lawns and all this when, you know, yeah, okay, but the majority of the water usage was all from agriculture. So how much CO2 really does flying put out? I'd like to see some comparisons on, is that really a super effective way to reduce your emissions as an individual? Right. And I think the counter argument is you can't just like give up, throw your hands in the air and say, well, I'm not going to do anything because that little bit, um, you know, doesn't, uh, it doesn't have a, a significant enough impact. So I'm just going to give up and not do anything. I think that's probably the wrong, the wrong answer. And we'll probably get emails right now from people <laughs> saying exactly <laughs> that to me. Fair enough. But we have the technology. You see, all these trips that you have to go on for work, right? It's it's like that old um, adage that I survived uh, another meeting that could have been an email. And, you know, I survived another business trip that could have been a two-hour VoIP call. No, I completely disagree with that. There's so much value to in-person time that you're never going to be able to replicate with remote work. Like, as a remote worker, it's just not the same at all. I can get, like, a month's worth of design work done in like a couple hours at a whiteboard in person with someone yeah i've got two letters for you vr (laughs) (laughs) no well for vr to work everyone has to use it like yeah but but it doesn't work because you you need to be in person to be able to have those corridor conversations or to stumble into a room where a conversation is happening and pick up on something and say oh that's a great idea and take that back and work on it or you know, go to an event, like, for example, I went to Academy a couple of weeks ago, and there was a conversation being held in a room where they said, oh, we don't know how to deal with this thing. And I said, well, you have the data, here it is. Um, But they didn't know they had access to this information. And if I hadn't been in the room, like happened to have wandered into the room and heard that conversation, there's no way they would have known that. So, and there are, there are countless examples of those kind of corridor conversations and uh, impromptu things that happen. And and it's one of the, one of the things we used to have at Ubuntu developer summits that people really miss was that in-person corridor conversation that you would have with people that would progress things way further than an email thread or IRC or video chat or whatever you want to call it. The hallway track. That's it. The hallway track. Okay, another hashtag ask error. This is just a quick one, and it's tangentially related to the last one. Talked about living the dream. Well, how do you go to sleep? Do you go to sleep in silence? Do you listen to podcasts, or do you listen to music? Definitely silence. Silence, all the lights off. I want to be in a sensory deprivation chamber. Do you go as far as earplugs and face mask if it's noisy and bright? No, because I don't want anything to touch me. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, I have for many years, uh, listened to stuff when I go to bed, but because I, um, have a partner who has no taste, she (laughs) can't, can't listen to the same things that I listen to. So I put one ear in the ear that's pointing upwards and the other ear 
down in the pillow. And I, for many years, I had a iRiver MP3 player and I had it full of uh, BBC radio comedies like Mitchell and Webb, uh, The Consultants. I had all of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on there, uh, loads of audio books and stuff. And I would just pick something almost at random, hit play, put one earphone in and fall asleep listening to that. Um, and I've got used to that. And that's pretty much every night now I'll either put a podcast on um, or if if I'm not in the mood to be intellectually engaged with a podcast, I'll listen to either an audiobook. I've listened to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Dirk Gently hundreds of times. I've lost count. Um, and I know all of the Mitchell and Webb sketches inside out as well. Um, so yeah, I, I listen to spoken word, not music every night. Yeah. Well, unsurprisingly, I listen to podcasts as well. And I'm exactly the same as you. One ear on the pillow, one earbud in. And that's why all my podcasts are in mono and why I told you that yours should be in mono as well. But you fucking make me do it in stereo like a twat. Fair point. So a very simple question. Will desktop Linux ever make money? Dan, you are trying your very best with elementary OS to do that. Popey, you have worked for a company who is arguably making money, or I think is making money from deals with the likes of Dell, um, and has tried the App Store model and stuff before. So you're somewhat jaded and experienced. Um, but Dan, I get the feeling you're going to argue with this this premise in the first place. Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say that um, will desktop Linux ever make money? Yeah, we already do make money uh, off of only desktop Linux. Uh, elementary is fully bootstrapped. We've never taken any loans. Uh, we don't have any enterprise deals or royalties or anything like that. We don't have any server products or we just sell our operating system to normal people and and that has uh, allowed us to run a payroll. And so, yeah, done. Next topic. One of your developers does have to run a GoFundMe to get a laptop to work on, though, to be fair. So you can't be making that much. Yeah, I mean, and that's not something that um, necessarily has to be done, but um, it definitely is a huge help. Like, the more things that we can crowdfund, the better, um, because then we could you know, pay for like travel and things like that. So it's like, well, can we go to Quadec, you know, or, um, you know, can we buy a computer? So the more crowdfunding that we can do, um, and the more fundraising, like we're, we're continuously fundraising and, and we have multiple fundraising streams. And you're not shy about asking for money and, and, you know, making money. You, I think, are, if not unique, you are certainly unusual in the desktop Linux space or Linux generally and open source that you are just not shy, uh, you know, not backwards and coming forwards when it comes to money, right? No, not at all. I mean, this is this is my job. This is the same as if you walked into a restaurant and you were like, you're not really shy about asking for money, are you? <laughs> kind of look at you like, no, sh should I be? <laughs> And so, Poppy, without going into too much um, corporate secret stuff, um, Canonical does make money off the desktop, right? So I don't work in the desktop team, um, and I'm not privy to financial details. But yeah, the, the I mean, we we were lucky in that, um, yeah, from my perspective, we were lucky that we had a benevolent uh, person who came, who kicked off the project and decided to fund the thing in the first place so yeah we're very lucky in that regard anyone who's starting a linux distro now 
and starting with zero financial input is is going to have a hard time. We were very lucky that someone injected a huge amount of money to get us bootstrapped to where we are now. Um, but where we are now is we have a desktop that funds the team that makes it as a division within the company. The desktop is profitable. So yeah, will desktop Linux ever make money? I would agree with Dan. Yeah, it does make money. It already does. Um, and people might not like the fact that Canonical make money and that funds the development of Ubuntu and contributions to other projects as well. But that's the reality, reality of it. And I wouldn't apologize for that because if we didn't make money, we wouldn't be able to fund the continuing development of Ubuntu and all those other derivatives that depend on the infrastructure that we have, like Launchpad and like all those build machines and the bug tracking tools and all the other bits and bobs that we have that makes Ubuntu and all the derivatives work. Um, wouldn't be possible if we didn't continue to make the desktop and continue to make money, which we do. Right, and in the in the same vein, I would say the same thing about us. And you know, if we if we weren't a company that makes money, then we wouldn't have been able to kick off App Center. And now we have over a hundred new uh, native GTK three apps that people are using, not just in elementary OS, but you know, they're showing up on on FlatHub and other places, being distributed to all kinds of Linux desktop users. And that's that's completely powered and funded and provided by you know people paying for our desktop operating system. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I was going to bring it up as well. Um, specifically, there's a parallel there with what Canonical tried with the Ubuntu App Store. And that seemingly didn't work out well. Otherwise, we'd still have it. There's a lot of reasons why that didn't work out well. <laughs> Finances must have been one of them. Uh, yeah, um, but it's not just a case of you know, we didn't sell enough apps, therefore shut it down. You, if you look deeper, it was actually hard to package apps to get them into the paid app store. And the focus was, was on getting any app in the store. It wasn't getting high quality apps in the store. It wasn't getting the best of breed Linux apps in the store. I'm hearing parallels here. <clears throat> Snap install. Uh, <laughs> or is that an outrageous claim that you're not just uh, getting any old snap? It's all about getting the high quality ones. Yeah. Like I've spent the last year with the team I work with talking to high quality software vendors. We don't, the, the Spotify, Slack, um, those kind of people, the, the Skype developers, they didn't just like magically happen out of nowhere. We worked hard to, talk to those people about the advantages of putting the software in the store. And once they appreciated what we were talking about, they, they did it. And we didn't have that all the way, all those years ago when we had the, the desktop app store where there were a whole load of Mickey Mouse applications, frankly, not particularly high quality that were difficult to package and difficult to update. The process was awful and it was just, not a great place to be in. Whereas when you look at what uh, Daniel and Elementary are doing, they're streamlining the process. They've got a high barrier for um, quality control and a good process for getting your applications updated and installed on end user systems. And that's something we didn't have back then. So yeah, we're, we're not redoing what didn't work. We've learned from that and doing it differently. 
Yeah, and I think that the technology in general and the kind of landscape and ecosystem was completely different at that time too. I mean, we leverage a lot of existing technologies, um, things like AppStream for metadata, right? Just that, you know, is a huge uh, benefit for us. Um, but we also leverage like GitHub as a platform in a huge way. And we use Stripe and Stripe Connect for all the payment processing and tax reporting and, and like things that I'm sure that were a lot more manual when uh, Canonical tried this Ubuntu store. Yeah. We also had the problem that the, the payment processing system we used had a minimum spend of like some ridiculously high value that, that, that meant that people couldn't put inexpensive little utilities in the store. The, the amount of effort you had to put in to get your app in the store, the reward that you would get isn't worth it because nobody would pay the amount, you know, for that application. And the onus was on us to help you package it and get it in the store. And so we were blocking all these applications. It was, it was not a happy time. Um, and yeah, we've learned from that and we don't, we're not doing that again. And how close are we to getting to paid snaps then? The likes of, I don't know, Adobe or whatever, where, because at the moment, the the big proprietary ones that you've got are all um, like freemium, aren't they? Like Spotify and, um, you know, or just free to use. But when you get to a stage where you've got apps that are paid for and need, you know, you need to buy the license or whatever, how is that going to work? Is it going to be like you buy the license on the website and just enter the code in and it's otherwise free to download the snap, but it's just useless if you don't have the license? So we allow, you know, apps in the store that already have a payment system. So you, you said Spotify and Slack is another good example. They already have their in, their in-app payments. Uh, well, it's either in-app payments or you go to their portal and you pay and, you know, you get a service mm. fee or a subscription service or whatever it is. Um, and yeah, we'll have the ability to pay for snaps outright. So the kind of steam model where you, you know, you, you go to the store and you press a button and you give them your PayPal details and you pay or whatever the you know, payment system is. That's all been developed, but it's not ready yet. Um, some of the pieces are, um, are finished, but the entire end-to-end user experience isn't polished enough for us to release it yet. So we're not ready for uh, paid apps right now. Um, I think that will come probably later in the year, maybe next year. I don't, I, I don't see that coming within the next couple of months. Um, but that's fine because right now there are plenty of apps in there that are free and people can have subscription or paid systems that are off-site. That's fine. And so, Dan, of the um, downloads that you have, I mean, I presume you must have fairly detailed stats on this. Of the people downloading these pay-what-you-want apps, how many of them are actually paying? I mean, it must be less than 1%, right? Uh, yeah, the last time I checked it, it was less than 1%. So um, we we got um, the downloads of the operating system up to about 1%, but the apps, I think, are still like a tenth of a percent or something. It's pretty low. And do you ever share figures for like how many, what, what that 1% is of, or is that a trade secret? Uh, you mean like uh, gross revenue? Well, no, what I mean is uh, how many people download it and of, you know, you say 1% pay for it, what, but 1% of how many, like are we talking... A thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand, million? Um, I don't have that off the top of my head, actually. Um, but it, I mean, it's definitely less than a million. I think the latest estimates we have is like it's um like a couple hundred thousand users, and not all of them are downloading apps from the store. So it's probably in the tens of thousands. And elementary is a like superbly popular 
distro, the vast majority of distros out there have way fewer users than elementary. Yeah, well, there's a, a tangential question. Um, what is more popular in terms of users? Okay, not, not more popular. What is used more in terms of desktop users, do you think? Um, like Ubuntu, uh, Mint, Fedora, Elementary? I mean, wh where... That's a hard question to answer. You know that. I know it's a hard question, but w what are your feelings on it? <laughs> if I gave you my feelings... You would say I'm coming from a biased position. and <laughs> So obviously Ubuntu number one. Well, yeah, I'm pretty certain Ubuntu is probably the most used Linux distro. On, if you're talking about the desktop, yeah, uh, as this, this segment is, then yeah, I'd say probably Ubuntu is the number one distro on the desktop. From what I understand, too, by a really, really wide margin. Why is it that Mint is, um, you know, I, I hate to <laughs> cite distro watch, but... Oh, my God. Oh, no, no, but it's okay. Not just that. Anecdotally, people who first try Linux, they hear about this Linux thing, they tend to find Mint first rather than Ubuntu. Do they? Uh, that's I have no documentary evidence for that, but that's the feeling that I get. Do they really? Like, I, I think it depends when they when they found Linux, right? You've got to remember that a few years ago, we were sending s free CDs to people and you could give them out to your friends and there were thousands of those things given out and a lot of people's first introduction to Linux was one of those CDs that they got from the Ship It service. Now, we haven't done that for a few years now, but there's still a huge number of people whose first gateway into Linux was using Ubuntu from a free CD or a CD that was on the cover of a magazine. Now, the people who really love the distro they run tell their friends. And there are quite a few vocal people who use Linux Mint who tell their friends, you should use Linux Mint, and that's fine. And there are a lot of vocal people who use SUSE because they love Yast or they love Snapper or they love Zipper or whatever it is that they love about that distro, they tell their friends. And depending upon who you listen to, you might hear cheering for Elementary or SUSE or Fedora or Ubuntu. But the raw numbers, generally, Ubuntu is, I would say, probably higher than most of the others. Well, the thing that makes me question that um, is, uh, you know, the guy who was writing for Forbes, Jason something, mm -hmm. I can't remember his surname. Yep. He said that he tried Mint first after just Googling for it. And he just seems like a normal user. He's obviously fairly techy because he had a, a gaming PC, so he knew enough about how to install it. Um, but Linux Mint was his first port of call. It didn't happen to see his disk for whatever reason. It was missing the driver or whatever. And that's when he tried Ubuntu second. And that's what makes me wonder, like, how popular Mint really is. Because they kind of, well, because Clem is just not interested in coming out and um, doing interviews and stuff, we don't really seem to talk much about them. But I see so many people uh, using it. He's got a very enthusiastic user base and, and he's got a desktop that lots of people love to use and it works. So why would you not sing the praises of Linux Mint? You know, it's, it's built on a foundation of Ubuntu and that's built on a foundation of Debian. So it's got all the right solid foundations underneath it, like many derivatives. Um, and it's got a desktop that people find appealing. And why, why would you not? tell your friends and write blog posts and make YouTube videos about how great Linux Mint is. So when new people come along and they search for, you know, what Linux 
should I try? Linux Mint is one of the ones that pops up in the list for sure. Mint does publish their their donations number, right? So if if we just go by revenue, I think um, that you could probably make a case that Mint is maybe twice as popular as elementary OS. But last I checked, I think uh, Ubuntu has like hundreds of times as many installs as elementary OS. So really, Mint's install base is a piss in the ocean compared to Ubuntu. I don't know. I don't know that it's that small, and I wouldn't describe it as that. I'd say <laughs> they, they clearly, well, I mean, they have people shipping hardware that runs Linux Mint. They certainly don't have as many devices as Ubuntu have shipping in the wild, like big tier one companies like Dell, Lenovo, and others who are shipping machines that have it out the box. You know, that helps as well. It's not just a case of someone Googling, you know, what Linux distro should I try? But if people actually go onto a web store, they might see, you know, a, a laptop running Ubuntu on a Dell website, which helps to helps us to sell the product because there's a big name behind it. It's not just some random two bit distro made by some guy in his garage. It's actually got some corporate backing, which some people find has greater weight, whereas other people prefer community distros which don't have corporate backing like Linux Mint each to their own I would guess that Ubuntu probably has more users running it that don't know what Ubuntu is than Linux Mint has users total Mm -hmm.